Could you please uh, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1? We had an introduction sermon to the book of Genesis last Sunday. So this is our, our first sermon considering the text up close. And verse 1 will be forming the sermon this morning. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, first words. Okay, these are something that every parent cherishes. The first words of your child, it's an important milestone, that's true, but it's even more significant sentimentally. This is one of the treasures of life, especially if it happens to be mum or dad. You know, in America, the first words of a president known as the inauguration address, okay, this is attended by hundreds of thousands of people, some presidents over a million, and then many more will watch through varying media outlets. Okay, why would they want to hear the first words of the newly elected president? But what if God was to speak to man? Now his first statement would surely be of utmost importance. God is far more important than any president, and hence his words certainly demand our attention. But if God was to speak, what would he say first? Well, it is this that we have recorded in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Okay, this is God's first words of revelation that he wanted recorded in the scriptures. It is with this statement that God begins to reveal himself to mankind. The Lord in his infinite wisdom starts here. He could have commenced with many other statements. And yet it was with this one that he chose to commence his revelation. And the very placement of this verse highlights its extreme significance. Now, it's difficult to describe adequately the impact and the importance of these first words. It's challenging to captivate the vast depths of meaning. That this is an incredible theological statement. It's a vital foundation to everything that follows. It's one of the most profound statements ever written. And this should cause us to pay attention. God's first words in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And as we begin to unpack this revelation, I want to begin by considering two general interpretive points. Okay, the first point uh, is this. This is historical narrative. Okay, a lot could be said about this point. We can have a whole sermon or even a sermon series on this. It's quite a large issue, especially in our day of critical scholarship and liberal theology. But what's interesting is that this was very rarely, if ever, questioned for most of history. It's only recent trends driven by the influence of science and evolution that has produced varying hypotheses that present a different proposed understanding of this portion of scripture. Okay, this is a recent phenomenon. Now I'd like to share two lines of evidence for this being historical narrative. The first is grammar. 
Okay, this is written in a way that's consistent with the other historical portions of Scripture. Okay, we've got a lot of Scripture that we know is history. And this portion of Scripture follows the Hebrew narrative style of writing. One example given by one scholar is the verb that's translated created. It is a Hebrew stem formation that tells us this is historical. If it wasn't historical narrative, it would have a different stem formation as the first verb. So the grammar is consistent with a narrative style of writing, not poetry, not mythical. Now, the second line of evidence is the testimony of the other writers of Scripture. Okay, in other places throughout the Bible, creation is regarded as an historical event. We see this in the book of Exodus. We see this in the Psalms. We see this in the prophets, particularly Isaiah. And we see it from Jesus himself. And one of the clearest evidences of this is the genealogy of Jesus recorded in Luke's gospel. There is a really long list of names. Okay, and the name, most of the names on that list okay, are people who are historical figures. Okay, their historical existence is never questioned. And guess who it goes back to? It goes all the way back to Adam. Okay, showing us that he is regarded as a historical figure. So the Bible treats Genesis and the creation account as history. And so should we. The second interpretive point that I'd like to make, this, this verse, Genesis 1.1, is not a summary or a heading. Okay, there are many who view the first verse of the Bible as a summary or a heading of the creation week. Okay, but that view has some issues. Okay, verse 1 includes a verb form, as I've just mentioned, that is used of historical narrative. That wouldn't make sense if this is a summary. Verse 2 commences with the word and. That doesn't make grammatical sense if verse 1 is a summary. And if God started with light, okay, that's verse 3, when was the material matter created? And hence it's best to view verse 1 as the record of the first part of the work of creation on the first day. Okay, it's not merely a summary or a heading. So with those interpretive points in mind, let's begin to unpack this incredibly significant and infinitely deep statement that is God's first revelation. Now, a good and obvious question for us to pose is this. What is this verse all about? Well, notice that the subject is God. And that is no accident. The Bible starts with its focus on God, not on man, nor on anything else. God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. In fact, he dominates the entire first chapter, which makes it clear that the Bible is about God first and foremost. It says many other things, but primarily it's about God. And that needs to be our focus. Okay, I appreciated that being brought out by Pastor Matthews last week. God is the main character in the Bible. And since God is the subject of the Bible and he is the subject of this verse, that's going to govern 
how we approach this verse. Okay, I want us to consider what these first words reveal about our God and how that impacts our lives. I'm going to do this under two simple headings, implicit revelation and explicit revelation. So firstly, let's consider implicit revelation. Now, the first and most obvious implied declaration of this revelation is that God exists. God exists. And I love how straight to the point this first statement is. In the beginning, God. No explanation, no qualifiers. The existence of God is assured and assumed. It's a categorical and confident pronouncement. And it's interesting that in the beginning, God, it's only two Hebrew words, and yet it instantly discounts atheism, which says there is no God, and agnosticism, which says we can't be sure if there is a God. So, so these widely held views are made redundant and dismissed by the first stroke of the pen. It declares you can be certain that there's a God. He does exist. That this is the loud pronouncement from the heavenly megaphone as the first words of scripture are penned. Now, has it ever struck you that in this verse, God's existence is assumed and categorically pronounced, but the Bible doesn't offer 10 apologetical proofs for the existence of God. Although such evidence is not completely irrelevant, there are logical reasons to believe in God. But no elaborate argument is made for God's existence. It's assumed from the outset. Okay, the Holy Spirit deems certain truths to be self-evident. The first and foremost being that God exists. It's here where the Bible starts. Now, this leads to a question that's often posed. If God is the creator, who created God? Has anyone ever asked you that question? Okay, if God was there in the beginning, how did he get there? Okay, how are we to answer such a question? Well, it comes back to understanding who God is. Okay, the answer is this. God is eternal. God has no beginning or no end. He has always existed okay, and here's the thing something can't come from nothing so with whatever creation explanation you want to hold to you need something to be eternal it's either matter god or something else okay in every system something needs to be eternal otherwise you need to believe the ridiculous notion that something come from nothing which is a complete contradiction it's impossible okay, so the christian worldview says that god is eternal that that's the most rational explanation okay god exists endlessly okay from our perspective okay this isn't the best way to explain it but we struggle to think outside of time, okay, because we're bound by time. So God's existence extends endlessly backwards and endlessly forwards without any interruption, although God is outside of time. Now, one theologian provides this definition, and this is on your outline sheet. 
is that God perfectly transcends all limitations of time so that he is without beginning, without ending, and without succession of moments in the experience of his being and in his consciousness of all reality. That's what we mean by the eternality of God. God has always existed and he will always exist. He can't cease to exist. It's impossible. And he's not limited by time. He's outside of time. And yet he interacts with us in time. And if that's confusing you, if that's blowing your mind, that's okay. It's meant to. Now, the eternality of God, it's implied in Genesis 1.1. Okay, at the beginning, he was already there. And Psalm 90 verse 2 makes the point categorically. It says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So God has always existed in sublime glory. And since he's eternal, he needs no cause. Because only things with a beginning need a cause. God has no origin. He has always existed. And since God is eternal and has always existed, even prior to creation, this tells us something else about God. God is self-existent. This is sometimes referred to as the aseity of God or God's independence. So God not only has no origin, but he also depends on nobody. God depends on nobody. One theologian gives this definition. Again, it's in your outline. God is independent of all things. He's perfectly self-sufficient, not depending on anything outside of himself for anything. And he's therefore the eternal foundational being, the source of life and sustenance for all other beings. This is God's self-existence. And this is really important when it comes to creation. Okay, this is what we need to understand. God didn't create the world because he needed it. Okay, it's not as though God was incomplete. It's not as though God was lacking and hence he needed creation. It's not like God was an incomplete puzzle, but the created universe, especially mankind, are the missing pieces to that puzzle. Not at all. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need anyone to exist or be fulfilled. He is dependent on nobody and perfectly complete in himself. Now, you and I, we're very different to God in many ways. But in this particular element of God's character, we are dependent on many things for our existence. We need oxygen. We need food. We need water, we need light, we need heat, we need gravity. But God needs none of these things. Okay, God doesn't need the material universe. He doesn't need the human race. He's never lacked in any way. Everything could disappear and yet God would remain. And he would still be perfect and he'd still be complete. Okay, God is self-existent and self-sufficient. And that is proven by the fact that he existed prior to the beginning. And we make a grave mistake if we feel as though the creation completes God in any way. Or or if we think that God is deficient or lacking without it. God depends on nothing. 
but everything depends on him. So he is the God who exists. He's the God who is eternal, self-existent, and self-sufficient. This is all implied revelation. And there's at least one more revelation that's implied. Okay, the, the word God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And this stresses God's power and majesty. But what's particularly interesting is the grammar. Okay, it's a plural word. And hence, the verbs and pronouns ought to be plural. But when Elohim refers to the Lord God, the verbs and pronouns are in the singular. Okay, so we have unity and plurality being stressed. And although I don't think the writer had a full-blown comprehension of the Trinity, I think we're pushing that too far, okay? because this is progressively revealed throughout the Bible, primarily in the New Testament. But even here we see the God who exists is one God, and yet there's a plurality. So, so the mystery of the Trinity is embedded in seed form, even in the first words of the Bible. Okay? And this happens with our doctrine. Our doctrine should be found in seed form in the book of Genesis. Okay? And as we assess other scriptures, creation is attributed to all three members of the Trinity. Okay? They're all involved. God the Father, Acts 4.24. God the Son, Jesus, Colossians 1.16. John 1.3. And God the Spirit, Genesis 1, 2. So what later becomes explicit is implied here. The God who exists is one God existing in three persons, unity and trinity. Okay, so this is all the implied revelation in the first statement of the Bible. Now I'd like to move to our second point, which I've entitled the explicit revelation. Okay, the first thing that God reveals about himself categorically, that is clear, that is obvious, he is the creator. He, he is the one who created all things. This is the Lord's first revelation about himself. And this is an important revelation because every culture and every religion has its own creation story. Okay, it's a question that we all ask. How did I get here? How did the world begin? Okay, we, we all need to be able to answer that question. And how we answer that particular question will have far-reaching implications. Now, it's good for us to remember that the original readers of this creation account, okay, remember this is written by Moses. So the first people to read this would have been Israel in the wilderness. Okay, so that they have been freed from Egypt. But remember, Egypt is notorious for its plethora of gods. Okay, they would have had numerous creation accounts. So this initial revelation was vital in combating false Egyptian creation theories that so many of them would have been familiar with. And also combating the various theories that they would come across in the land of Canaan. And not too much has changed today. There are varying theories of the origin of the world. And hence, God begins his revelation by answering that question. And the fact that God starts here reveals the importance of this doctrine. 
Okay, God as creator is not something to be treated trivially. Okay, it's not something that should be disregarded. Because God doesn't do anything accidentally. So the fact that this is his first recorded revelation, that screams out its significance. Now what's fascinating is the Hebrew word that's used. Okay, there, there are three different Hebrew words translated create, form, or made. And the word that's used here in verse 1 is bara. And it's only used of God's creative acts. And when it's used with God, it means to make something out of nothing. It's calling to existence that which had no prior existence. It's the production of new things from nothing. So God didn't use pre-existing materials to produce the world. Matter is not eternal. God needed to create the materials from nothing to make the world. And think about that. That is astonishing. Creating something from nothing. Only God can do this. And such a declaration shows that God is so much greater than man and so far beyond us. Because as mankind, we can create things in the sense of the other two Hebrew words. We can make things, ashar. We can form things, yatsar. But we cannot create bara. Okay, well, we can make things out of existing materials. Okay, if you gave me timber, nails, roofing on windows and doors, I'll make you a house. If someone gives us flour, eggs, milk, sugar, we can make a cake. But, but we're not able to produce the materials out of nothing. We can't say, house be built and there's a house. Man, if you could do that, you'd be incredibly wealthy. You'd solve a lot of problems in the world. Okay, but that is restricted to God alone. Only God can do that. And I want us to pause just for a moment. And I want us to think about how amazing that is. Okay, don't simply move past this quickly. But allow this to sink in. May it hit both our mind and our hearts that's astonishing power. One moment there's nothing. And then God speaks. And material matter existed. He, he spoke and atoms and molecules were created. Okay, that explains the commencement of the universe. God made it out of nothing. My friend, that's our gods. What a great God we serve. What astonishing power. And notice what God made. We're told he created the heaven and the earth. Okay, this is actually a Hebrew figure of speech. It's called a merism, which is a statement of two opposites to indicate a totality. So the sense is that God created everything there is in all creation. All matter, space, time and energy are created by God. The sun, the moon, the stars in our galaxy and every other galaxy. All the animals, great and small, owe their existence to God. All the plants, all the trees, all the flowers come from God. Light, water, oxygen, all of these essential elements made by God. 
mankind in all of our incredible complexity formed by gods. All the laws of nature were implemented by God. Time itself was called into existence by the Lord. And again, allow that to sink in. That's astonishing. It's not like he created something small and simple. That would have been impressive enough okay, to create something small out of nothing. We can't do that. But, but he created this massive universe that is so big, we don't even know how big it is. He created something that's incredibly complex, that depends on minute precision, that, that contains breathtaking beauty all by speaking. If that doesn't blow your mind, I don't think anything will. Now, as we contemplate these things, it certainly magnifies the awesome power of God, but also the astonishing wisdom of God, because our universe is so finely tuned to precision. It cries out for an intelligent designer. Now, think about this. Okay, this comes from one writer. He makes four points. Number one. The universe has a just right gravitational force. If it were larger, the stars would be too hot and would burn up too quickly and too unevenly to support life. If it were smaller, the stars would remain so cool, nuclear fusion would never ignite and there would be no heat and light. Number two, the universe has a just right speed of light. If it were larger, stars would send out too much light. If it were smaller, the stars would not send enough light. Number three, the universe has a just right average distance between the stars. If it were larger, the heavy element density would be too thin for rocky planets to form, and there would only be gas planets. If it were smaller, planetary orbits would become destabilized because of the gravitational pull from other stars. And number four, the universe has a just right polarity of the water molecule. If it were greater, the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too great for life to exist. If it were smaller, the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too small for life's existence. And that's just four examples. Okay, isn't that astonishing? We're only just scratching the surface. This world is, is incredibly intricate and fine-tuned, and it screams out for an intelligent designer. For this to be an act of chance is incredibly far-fetched and even ludicrous. Everything around us has God's fingerprints all over it. It pronounces his infinite wisdom and power. God created the heaven and the earth. God is the creator. This is his first explicit revelation to mankind. Now, what impact should this revelation have on us? I fear sometimes we can be so determined to defend creation against evolution, which is a worthy endeavor. It's important to argue for the Christian view of origins. But we need to be careful that we don't become so consumed with the debate that we end up missing out on how the doctrine of creation is meant to impact our lives. 
Okay, we can get so consumed with the intellectual debates that we miss out on other aspects. And I want to conclude with three ways that creation should impact our life. Number one, creation is about ownership. Creation is about ownership. Since God is the creator, that means he is the owner of this world and he is the owner of you. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Okay, everything belongs to the Lord. You, all that you are and all that you have belongs to the Lord. He is the owner. You know, one writer made this observation. He said, the doctrine of creation is not just about origins, but it's also about how you think about and approach everything in your life. We live in God's world as God's possessions, handling God's things. This is a radically different way of living from the way most people live. Instinctively, people think that their life is theirs for the living and the things in their life have no greater purpose than to bring them happiness. But God says, no, not only does the whole world belong to me, but you do too. This truth calls you to surrender everything you are and everything you have to the ownership of your Lord. This applies to every area of life. You know, think about money. Most of us think that the money we have belongs to us, except just that small amount that I give back to God. But that's not true. Okay? All of our money belongs to the Lord and hence we are to steward it wisely. Okay? Instead of thinking constantly, how can I use this to make myself happy? Okay? Think, how can, I, how can I be generous? How can I help others? How can I advance God's work? Doesn't mean to say you can't spend money on yourself, of course. Okay? But, but this okay, ownership will affect how we use our money. Think about our bodies. Okay, if we believe they belong to us, we will say, well, hey, I can do as I please. My body, do what I want. Okay, this is why so many end up in sexual sin. Okay, we believe that we're free to do as we please with our bodies. And that is where God's ownership is radical. Okay, our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. It's especially true if you're a Christian. He made you and he redeemed you. And hence, we aren't free to do as we please. Think about our time and talents. Okay, we, we believe we're free to do whatever we want with them because they're ours. It's my time. It's my talents. But that's not the case. God is the owner of these things. And hence, we need to be asking, how can I best use them for the Lord? My friend, creation is about ownership. And it calls us to live our lives like we own nothing, including ourselves. It calls us to remember that everything belongs to the Lord. And if we embrace that, that will change how we live our lives. When we remember that we are not the designer, we are not the owner, it will help us to ask this question in every situation. What is God's purpose and how can I use this for him? That's the attitude we'll adopt when we understand that we are not the owner. Number two, creation is about dependence. Now, something that I've noticed with my children is that very quickly they want to be independent. 
Okay, they don't want my help. They want to be autonomous. Some things that's helpful. Other things that's sinful. Okay, and as humans, we love independence. We love autonomy. But creation reminds us that we are dependent. Creation smashes to smithereens the lie of autonomy. Because God is the only one who is truly independent and autonomous. We are not. God has created you and I to be dependent on so many things. Primarily himself. And independence is a delusion. But it is a dangerous one that takes many forms. Okay, we believe we're free to do as we please. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Okay, that's all about independence. That's all about autonomy. You know, we believe we have the ability to, to do all things. Okay, nobody needs to help me. You know, and this is why so many people fail to embrace the gospel because they're pursuing the independence lie that they are able to make themselves right with God. Okay, I don't need any help. I can earn God's favor. I can earn forgiveness. Okay, and this independence delusion is going to send people to hell. Okay, creation reminds us that only God is truly dependent. And we are created, which makes us dependent. I find it interesting what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He's talking about the gospel, focusing particularly on the ministry of reconciliation. And in verse 15, he says, And that he, that's Christ, died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So creation reminds us that we're not independent, but the gospel, grace enables us to live that dependent life. Okay, we don't live for self. Okay, we, we, we don't live an autonomous life. Okay, we, we aren't to live in a self-absorbed way, but we live for Christ and we live dependent on Christ. Okay, we realize that we desperately need God's help for all things. We, we are desperately dependent on him. And creation is a vivid reminder of our dependence. Number three, creation is about glory. Now, the created realm sings and preaches about the glory of God. That psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, creation is meant to point us to God by design. Creation says something about him. Everything around us is preaching a sermon about God. It's singing praises to him. Okay, creation is a giant finger pointing to God. And my friend, as we live our day-to-day -day lives... Let's see the glory and wonder of God in the created realm all around us. Let's not be deaf and blind to the revealing work of creation. Okay, let's allow it to direct our thoughts and meditations to God. When we gaze at the stars at night, may that take our minds to the Lord. As we see a glorious sunset, may we praise the Lord. 
as we enjoy the world around us, may it cause our love for the Lord to increase because he has given us something so wonderful to enjoy. Now, sure, we need to be very careful that we don't allow anything in the created realm to become God. That's idolatry. But anything created is meant to point us to the creator. And as we go about our lives this week, may we be in tune to the songs that creation sings about God. May we listen to the sermons it's preaching about God. May we allow everything around us to be a channel of meditation for, for, for the creation to fill our minds with thoughts about God. Because that is what the creation is designed to do. It declares the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your revelation to us. Uh, it's here where it commences. And our Lord, as we look at this verse, we just stand in awe of who you are. You are a great God. Uh, there is nobody like you. There's nobody even close. And I pray that each and every one of us would be struck uh, by who you are. And our Lord, may we be uh, allowing uh, the, the doctrine of creation to be impacting uh, our lives in the intended ways. Help us to be uh, attuned to the message of creation and see how it points to you. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.